0: Hello, I'm Andrew Palmer, Business Affairs Editor, and you're listening to Money Talks. On this show, we'll take a closer look at banks. Kevin Rogers, author of a new book on the rise of technology in banking, tells us why automation is making the financial sector more unstable. The destabilizing force of
1: technology that caused such problems, in my opinion, leading up to 1997,
0: 98, and seven, 2008, can't be stopped. And after last week's stress test
2: results in Europe, Do they tell us
0: anything useful? Our finance correspondent gives us his view. What
2: we should really be worried about is the detrimental long-term effects of these low interest rates staying low for a very long time and net interest margins remaining very narrow. First,
0: though, we explore how the world of high-stakes finance went from this to this. Kevin Rogers has been a banker for over 20 years, most of it spent at Deutsche Bank, while there, he witnessed the rapid rise of automation in foreign exchange markets as superfast computers gradually made traditional middlemen obsolete. In a new book, Why Aren't They Shouting? A Banker's Tale of Change, Computers, and Perpetual Crisis, he looks back on that transformation through the lens of the 2008 financial crash. Kevin, thanks for coming in.
1: You're very welcome.
0: You spend the first part of your book chronicling the rise of the machines in your area of expertise, the currency markets. That's right. that happened for a very good reason. Surely it made the place much more efficient.
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, I think it was plainly the case that FX was ripe for automation, certainly in the the simpler ends of the markets like the spot market. So the book opens up with the destruction of the traditional voice broker. Um, you know, kind of who ruled the roost for many decades and then were pretty much made completely redundant in the space of three or four years by by EBS. What happened subsequently was a sort of escalation, an arms race of technology that led to the whole-scale automation of, of foreign exchange in a very different competitive structure.
0: And is there a point when, in your mind, things had gone too far? I don't think too far, but what is clear
1: is that the enormous expense of automation, that the computer systems necessary to trade foreign exchange automatically are a hugely expensive thing for a bank to invest in, basically meant that the amount of market share held by the top players exploded. And simultaneously, the markets were used by various high-frequency funds that had come over from the equities market, and that too meant that the way that foreign exchange worked really altered very, very dramatically. So there's some good things about that. I mean, it's a much more convenient market. It's more transparent for end users. But at the same time, it's very possible that it's much more fragile than it used to be because there's just fewer people making liquidity.
0: And what what does it do to the culture inside the organisation as well? So different kinds of people coming in.
1: Absolutely. When I first started out, it was a very loud, very leery uh, environment it, you know and it wasn't for the faint of heart it was very masculine the cartoon version of fx traders all being barrow boys isn't right but it wasn't incorrect but now the classic spot trader now in a big bank would be a russian or israeli computer scientist and that transformation has altered the culture very rapidly within FX.
0: Now, your argument is that some of the worries that concerned you about what was going on in the currency markets can also illuminate what happened in the run-up to the financial crisis. So can you walk us us through that? What role does technology play in explaining that? If you look at um, the foreign exchange story, it's one of competitive pressures, a kind of
1: prisoner's dilemma for everybody who was in the industry. You had to act or be eliminated. I mean, people were just made unemployed en masse because of the huge increase in the power of computers. But if you look at the rest of banking, specifically um, the derivatives markets, which were you know, front and center both in 2007-8 and the kind of dry run for it in 1997-1998 with LTCM and uh, Russia and Asia, the increased power of computers allowed banks to just take much more risk. So... What I try to explain is how computers did two things that were in opposition to each other. First, they made the banking sector much more fragile and dangerous, way more complicated derivatives spread all over the world, but at the same time made banks think it was safer because of techniques like VAR, value at risk, and computerized risk management. So it's a bit like you know the people running banks were in a very powerful vehicle and they couldn't see out of the windows and they were looking at the instruments and when they put their foot down on the accelerator it said they'd gone from 30 to 35 miles an hour. In reality, they'd gone from 30 to 100 and that's why the crash came. It was this risk perception gap, as I dub it, between the reality of risk and the perception of
0: it. And some of this is behavioural surely as well. I mean, it's machines spitting out answers that because they're spit out by machines get treated as, as gospel.
1: Absolutely. I think that that was part of the problem the rational markets idea of how uh, banking worked meant that people believed in the numbers at a, a you know kind of at a high level and because the technology of banking allowed banks to grow and i'm not just talking about computers it's also about you know telephony actually was was a big deal Banks grew, and that meant the people ultimately responsible for them, the board and CEOs and risk management uh, personnel at the top of the bank, were really flying by wire effectively. They couldn't really understand what was going on in a big bank,
0: but just relied on the instruments that were frankly wrong. Now, how do you reflect on the post-crisis financial sector, given those concerns? It's not as if the regulators have taken very direct action against technology per se. Do you feel like it's less fragile? The regulators have come in and sort of solved the problem
1: that was 2007, 2008, or attempted to do so. Let's put it that way. There's no doubt whatsoever that raising capital ratios will make the system somewhat safer. Uh, There's no doubt that, you know, trying to put deals through centralised clearing might help with transparency. But have they fundamentally solved the problem? No, in my opinion. And the real reason for that, if you think that banks are just people and computers, which effectively they are, I mean, you know, every cent that pretty much that you earn or save will be in the form of uh, some kind of digital format, the technology won't stop. I mean, computers are getting more and more powerful, around about kind of 55% per annum, which is an exponential rise that means tens of thousands of times within my career. And because of that, the destabilizing force of technology, that caused such problems, in my opinion, leading up to 97, 98, and 2007, 2008, can't be stopped. It just won't stop. Now, how that will manifest itself within the banking system is, I don't know, I'm not clever enough, but nor is anybody else. That's the problem. The same forces, the same competitive pressures, and the same destabilizing influence of technology will mean that problems will pop
0: up where we least expect them. I mean, in some ways, this automation process will accelerate, not just because of computational power, but you you think about the fintech sector, that's absolutely a bet on introducing more technology into finance than the big banks have. And the big banks themselves have to cut costs to be profitable, and presumably technology is a big part of that as well.
1: Absolutely right. And the book ends with the, the thought that actually the banking sector, which used to be the best place for great computer technologists to go. You know, back in the 90s, I spoke to a an old colleague of mine who said, if you were a great computer scientist, you went to an investment bank. And now they don't anymore. Maybe they go to a hedge fund, but a lot of them go to the, you know, great Silicon Valley companies. And it's those type of competitors who are really eating away at the core franchise of banking, all the pieces of banking that are the most vulnerable and the most profitable. And it is interesting. I mean, I think you're absolutely right to, to point it fintech, that that is another destabilizing force within the the banking sector. And you know, the shadow banking sector is growing faster than actual banking, as banks themselves try to cut back and uh,
0: rationalize. Let's try and end on a slightly more upbeat note, which is that There might be an argument that we're sort of trapped in a particularly dangerous moment. But if you get to a point, and people at the Bank of England like Andy Haldane have sort of introduced this idea, if you get to a point where you've got enough information, you can see everything that's going on in the financial system. Technology allows you to sort of detect and monitor and act before crisis strikes.
1: I hope that that's the case. Let's put it that way. As a sort of concerned citizen and parent and investor, I think that would be a comforting uh, thought. And with the correct regulation, I think that the fact that the banking industry is somewhat fragmenting now gives an opportunity to politicians and regulators to come up with something that's a little bit more uh, fragmented than the very concentrated and very fragile state that we got into 10 years ago. I think the book ends slightly optimistically, and I'll keep my fingers crossed.
0: Very good. Very interesting stuff. Kevin Rogers, thank you for coming in. You're very welcome. And to our listeners, don't forget, if you have any thoughts on the rise of technology in the banking sector, you can tweet us at Economist Radio or email us at radio at Next, we move on to the results of the stress tests on European banks, which were announced last week. Krista Coscolo, our finance correspondent, joins me now to discuss the tests and their market effects. Krista, let's start with Italy, where there have been worries of a crisis brewing for a while. And so many people were fixed intently on the Italian bank results. What did they show?
2: So actually, as far as the stress tests are concerned, the um, Monte dei Paschi di Siena did much worse than all the other Italian banks that were tested. The other Italian banks actually did decently fine. So the tre- stress test showed that Monte dei Paschi would have, in an adverse scenario, ended up with a negative capital ratio, meaning it would have been actually been bankrupt, whereas other banks had capital ratios ranging from sort of 7 to 10%, which is quite normal.
0: Okay, and Monte dei Paschi is Italy's third largest lender. It's the bank that everyone has been worried about for a while. And just before the stress test results came out, they themselves made an announcement to try and shore things up. So, what did they? What was the plan that they came out with?
2: Yeah. So, Monte de Pasqui anticipated looking bad on the stress test, and so two hours before the stress test results were announced, they actually came out with a sort of private sector-led rescue plan. They're going to spin off €9 billion worth of non-performing loans off their balance sheet into a special purpose vehicle, um, securitize them, sell them on to investors, and then they're going to make up for the capital shortfall by raising €5 billion worth of new equity.
0: So lots of things have to happen for that to come to fruition. But the initial reaction to that, at least among investors in Monte di Paschi, was this probably helps make things better. But the Italian banks as a whole have suffered pretty badly this week. Why would that be?
2: Yeah, so that's interesting. So actually going back to Monte dei Paschi, there was um a, a lot of positive investor sentiment yesterday. Monte dei Paschi was the only European bank stock to rise by 4%, but today it fell off a cliff by 8%. So investors I think are reevaluating this this plan even as we speak and its its viability feasibility. But Unicredito has done particularly badly. Investors are looking more at their relative performance than at their sort of actual stress test results. So we're also expecting their quarter two results tomorrow. Generally, investors thought that the stress has showed that Unicredito needs more capital than they were perhaps anticipating and that Unicredito was in much worse shape than its close competitor Intesa, whereas both had previously been seen as relatively healthy Italian banks.
0: Okay, so the stress test results sort of they don't exactly take the spotlight away from from Italy, but they haven't precipitated some crisis. That's good. What about other countries um, whose results came out?
2: So Allied Irish Bank, which is still currently o- fully owned by the Irish government, actually was the second worst performer on the tests, um, only showing a four point three percent capital ratio in the adverse scenario that was modeled. So there there have been some worries that that would delay the Irish government's plans to refloat a quarter of that bank next year. Other poor performers include Raiffeisen Bank of Austria, which started the test off with a poor capital ratio. So they actually, generally speaking, have a poor capital ratio, even without any adverse scenarios. And then many of the German banks put in quite mediocre performances, such as Deutsche Bank and Commerzbank.
0: And if we sort of zoom right back and think about the aggregate health of European banks, how would you you summarize the stress test results?
2: Actually, the stress test results were quite positive when you look at averages. So besides these sort of poor performers, I I pointed to the, the averages look better than the previous stress test results. So in that sense, it's actually surprising that markets are are being so much more bearish on bank stocks these past couple days. So actually, the capital ratios that banks are starting with now are over a full percentage point higher than in the previous test, 12.6 as opposed to 11.1. And even the adverse scenario, the the average only fell to 9.2, whereas last time it was 7.6. So on average, European banks seem to be in better shape and have thicker capital cushions than they did even uh, a year and a half ago in the previous tests.
0: I suppose one reason for why investors may be sort of feeling bearish is that the stress tests may tell us something about the vulnerability of lenders to a kind of existential crisis but in terms of profitability those tests don't look at things like the effect of negative interest rates for example so their sort of ongoing ability to to make profit is not particularly illuminated by those tests.
2: No, not at all. And that's, in fact, something that's almost sort of more of a political constraint. I spoke to one analyst yesterday who was like, yeah, you know, the European Banking Authority would never be able to run a test where they actually simulate long, uh, low interest rates or long negative interest rates forever, because that's essentially the scenario we're we're looking at. That's almost too realistic and too scary. But apparently the Bundesbank had run a similar sort of stress test for German savings banks last year that, that showed very worrying results in terms of, you know, cutting into the profit margins of the German savings banks and sort of cutting their profitability in half or even much below. So actually, even if the stress test in this case modeled a, an adverse scenario of a huge spike in long-term interest rates, that what we should really be worried about is the detrimental long-term effects of these low interest rates staying low for a very long time and net interest margins remaining very narrow.
0: No escape from the gloom for European banks, uh, in the in the
2: short term at least? No, not even in the medium term. So unless sort of monetary policy changes, unless the macro picture changes, you know, banks at the end of the day are, are so tied to the economy they're located in, much more so than many under other industries. So... You know, bank health is tied to the economic health, and in, in Europe, we're seeing a lot of economic sclerosis. So it's it's hardly to be expected that the banking sector would do any better than, than the economy is at large.
0: Christa Koskello, thank you very much. That's all for this episode of Money Talks. To read more about the stress tests, pick up the upcoming issue of The Economist, or visit our website at economist.com. I'm Andrew Palmer. Thanks for joining us. Goodbye. Even on a budget.